Hi, welcome to True Creeps, where the stories are true and the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore to the possibly plausible paranormal, to horrifying history, to tense and terrible true crime, and everything else that goes bump in the night. We're your hosts, Amanda, and I'm Lindsay, and we want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. Today, we're going to be talking about Ed Gein, who's also been dubbed the Butcher of Plainfield. It's a heavy one. It's a very heavy one, but also less murdery than I thought it would be. That's fair. That's fair. Because I feel like I'd heard Ed Gein when you think about the epitome of disgusting killers. Yeah, crime scenes. Because he's listed amongst people who have done like terrible acts. And when we say terrible, it was so terrible that it inspired the book Psycho and the movie Silence of the Lambs and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre's villain Leatherface. Those are pretty big uh, things to inspire. Yeah. There's also Three on a Meat Hook from 1972, which I haven't seen. Deranged, Motel Hell, Ed and His Dead Mother. I mean, I feel like that. Ugh, yeah, fair, fair. It goes without going. That has Steve Buscemi in it, by the way. Ed Gein, a.k.a. In the Light of the Moon. I mean, I feel like it goes without saying if it has his name. It's part of it. House of a Thousand Corpses. The Devil's Rejects. Ed Gein, The Butcher of Plainfield. I mean, again, if it's, if it's got your name in it, we already know. That's a lot of big horror movies. Right. There's a full list of everything that he's inspired. And it's quite a bit. A lot of horror. Like, more movies than you would think. Yeah. And I think... When we get to the crime scene, I think you're going to see why so much horror was based off of him. Yeah. Yeah. Because when you think gruesome, think Ed Gein. I think that's fair. That's fair. So his notoriety isn't necessarily based on his victim count. It's the crime scene. Yes. And we'll get there. But we're going to start with his childhood first so we can get you to the place to understand how Ed Gein got to be Ed Gein. Yes. So he was born on August 27th of 1906 as Edward Theodore Gein. His parents were Augusta and George Gein. Augusta ran a grocery business and George worked as a tanner, a farmer and a carpenter. And I was like, tanner, like, what does this mean? I assume with like animals, like on a farm. And what it meant is he worked with leather. So animal skin, getting that ready makes sense. But he had a lot of like odd jobs. He wasn't like dedicated to one thing. Yeah. I mean, I do think keeping in mind that there's like a family experience with skin is an important note as we continue. Yes. So he was born in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and Augusta was super religious and she ran a very, very strict religious household. Also, Gein's father, George, was physically abusive and especially when he drank, he'd be even worse. So he was physically abusive to Gein, while Augusta was verbally abusive to Gein. George was a pretty big alcoholic, so he didn't grow up in the best of houses. Both Gein and his older brother, Henry, were raised to believe that the world was full of evil and that women were, quote unquote, vessels of sin. Yikes. So pretty intense household. Yeah. Also, that drinking and immorality were instruments of the devil. So in 1913, when Gein was just seven, he witnessed his parents slaughter a hog behind the family store, and he ejaculated upon viewing this. What a fact. What a fact. And it's like some of these facts, I'm like, how does this come up? You know, like when people are interviewed, it must have been an interview, right? Like, yeah, I doubt unless someone saw him. But like, it's just like a really weird fact to like discuss i guess yeah especially when you're talking about like a childhood instance so it might have been like formative for him yeah so augusta his mother thought that lacrosse was quote unquote the sinkhole of filth and she decided that she was going to move the family outside of plainfield into a farmhouse in 1914 so the farmhouse that they moved to was in central wisconsin and when they lived in the area the town itself was about two miles long And there were about a thousand residents total. So not terribly big. So the closest neighbors were almost a mile away. And she thought that living inside the town would corrupt the kids. So that's why they chose a farmhouse outside of town. Gein only went to school and he really didn't socialize like a typical kid. 
Also, Augusta would punish him when he would attempt to make friends, which is horrific and sad. It goes without saying, too, that she really wouldn't let anyone else onto the farm. When people remember Gein being a child, classmates remember him being socially awkward, and he would have weird, unexplainable fits of laughter. Also, Gein had a lazy eye. It was caused by a growth on his left eyelid. And he also had a speech impediment that was caused by a lesion on his tongue. So sad that it like made it even harder to make friends. You know, like even when his mother wasn't present, it was hard. Yeah, like he didn't have it good anywhere. No, no. So, of course, because kids are assholes, his classmates would tease him and he would come home crying. And at the sight of this, even worse, his father, George, would beat him until his ears rang. In 1918, when he was 12 years old, Augusta caught Gein masturbating while taking a bath. And so she grabbed his genitals and told him that they were the curse of man. I don't even know what to say. It's bad. It's bad. So in 1920, when he was 14 years old, Gein graduated eighth grade and then dropped out of school. And from what I understand, too, he was like a solid reader, like did well. It was just, you know, unfortunate that he wasn't allowed to have friends or be a normal kid. Yeah. And so from this point until he is in his 30s, there's actually not a ton of detail on his life available. We know that he worked on his family farm and that he spent hours every day studying the Bible over time. And as he grew up, right, it's not surprising. He developed a similar worldview as his mother when Ed was 21 and Henry was 26 because they had a five-year age difference. Augusta made Henry and Gein both promise her that they would always remain virgins. Interesting promise. Bizarre. Very bizarre. And I mean, like, at this point, we're talking about the late 1920s. So today people are like, okay, like, one day your child will grow up and will have relationships with people or they won't. But like, that's their decision, not yours. But then it was much more of like a you are sinful kind of situation, at least in America. So George, Gein's father, died from pneumonia on April 1st of 1940 when he was 66. And after his death, both Gein and Henry tried to help their mother make ends meet by taking odd jobs in the community. And one of the things that Gein did was he spent a lot of time babysitting and the town saw both Gein and Henry as trustworthy and reliable. I think what's so unique about this is so at this point, he's in his mid 30s living with his mother. Only his mother has no friends outside of this household. But the town's like, they seem like good people. Yeah, they're hardworking. Yeah, like they're hardworking. And I'm like, I think that's interesting because today we would look at that and be like, this seems strange. Yeah, don't leave your kids with them. Yeah, do not leave your kids with them. But at that point in time, people also had a very different, like, what happens in your house is what happens in your house, and it's not my business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, like, a small farming community, too, where, like, they're pretty close-knit because there's not a lot around. Like, there's not a lot of different people. Yeah. So you get to, like, you know that this person does this. This is what they do for work. We've seen them since they were children, right? Yeah. Anywho, so Gein's brother, Henry did not want to lead the life that Augusta wanted him to. He wanted to have a more normal life. And so he started dating a divorced single mother of two. And we've seen where it seems like he was thinking of moving in with her, which is starkly against what Augusta believed in. Because first off, she's divorced. Not great. Secondly, living together without being married. Also not great. And then, I mean, generally, it seemed like she just did not want them to have relationships with women at all. So this was not good. Yeah. And Gein, who was very much like, yes, mother, saw this as his brother rebelling against Augusta. And so he started to shut Henry out. But also, Henry began criticizing Augusta in front of Gein and was even like, hey, the relationship between the two of you is fucking weird. He pointed it out and was like, this isn't right. Like, something's up here. So May 16th of 1944, Henry and Gein were clearing vegetation from their fields. And the way that they're doing this is they're using fire to clean it out. But the fire gets out of control. When firefighters arrive... Gein told them that Henry just vanished. 
Later, search parties found Hendry's body around dusk. He was laying face down in the marsh, and he looked like he had been dead for a while, but his body did have burns of fire. There are also reports that Gein led law enforcement to Henry's body. There was no investigation or autopsy, and Henry's cause of death was listed as asphyxiation. At that time, they thought it was likely an accident or that Henry had a heart attack while they were trying to put out the fire. We've seen differing reports. Some sources say that Henry's body was burned, at least in some part. Some say he was completely untouched by the fire. To me, I'm like, you can die in a fire and not be burned. Yeah, yeah. So, like, altogether, that's not alarming. But what's interesting is that at the time, they thought that he died of, like, a heart attack or that there was some type of accident having relating to due to the fire. And so it's not that they were like, he burned to death. Because clearly from his body, it didn't look like it was the fire itself that did it but rather like something happened in his body as a result of the fire. The biography Deviant by Harold Schechter, he says that there was also blunt force trauma to Henry's head. That's weird. Yes. Not caused by a fire unless something fell. You know, like if it's a house fire, I could see a beam falling. Yeah. Or, you know, like something like that, but not in the middle of a field. So when you're thinking of like you're clearing a field out, there's generally not trees over the field in in like where you would be growing crops. So, right. Blunt force trauma is a little bit strange. I mean, he could have been running from the fire and fallen into the marsh, but I feel like they would have been able to see that in his body because he would have had his head in front of a rock, right? And he's laying on it. Right, right. You would see some something else. Like you would have seen what actually hit him. And in case you couldn't get what we were hinting at, some people think that Henry was Ed's first victim. Also, that he may have been inspired by the biblical story of Cain and Abel. Interesting. Yes. So from that point forward, Ed and Augusta lived alone. And this was up until 1944 when Augusta had her first stroke and had to be hospitalized. In 1945, Augusta told Gein that she was concerned with what he was reading. And it was lots of books on anatomy, head shrinking, and grave robbing. When I first read that, I thought they meant like psychology in head shrinking because I was like that's what people like would say like the word shrink that's what I thought we were talking about and I was like oh you naive summer child like absolutely not (laughs) oh we're not (laughs) nope I read his uh choice in books after I read about the crime scene so I flip-flopped it and I was like oh okay interesting interesting and I was like oh like he literally like shrunk her head just so fucked oh yeah 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 Very, very, very strange. I haven't really seen that in any other crime scenes that we've ever discussed of that even being a thing. I also don't think we've covered any gruesome crime scenes like this. We also haven't covered a lot of the well-known serial killers, but this we were like, this this is very interesting. It's a different type of case. Well, and I don't think that this one is discussed as much. Like everyone will talk about Gacy or Mm -hmm. Dahmer and all of those, but... You don't like you hear Gein lumped in there, but you don't ever hear the details about Gein. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's accurate. I think that's one of the reasons why I was so surprised. Like, oh, hmm, interesting when we get to numbers. Yeah. Yeah. So Augusta was 67 years old when she suffered a second stroke. It's speculated that the second stroke was brought on by seeing an unmarried woman in the home of one of her neighbors. And so like, think about that. If that is how she feels about a neighbor. How would she feel about her son? Yeah, yeah. She, she's very passionate about this. Yes, exactly. That she has nothing to do with. She's nosy. And so Augusta referred to that woman as a harlot. What a time. Again, passionate. She does not like what other people are doing and she is in their business. But because of this, she died a few weeks later after the stroke on December 29th, 1945. Just the thought of like getting so mad at a neighbor, you, you die. is pretty wild. That feels like so contemporary, does it not? Like, I don't like your life so much that I am literally going to die about it. I don't think that was her intention, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. So after Augusta died, Ed started looking very unkempt. And his neighbors began talking about how badly he smelled. So he wasn't taking care of himself. From that point forward, the house 
started to get even fucking weirder. After his mother's death, Gein sort of made the house into like a weird shrine in her memory. And he even kept her room in pristine condition and boarded it up so nothing could be moved. Along with her room, he also sealed off the drawing room in five other rooms on the second floor. And so then what he did is he moved into a small room downstairs and it's like near the kitchen. So everything else is just like this weird, creepy museum. He lives in this disheveled room near the kitchen. And remember, like he lived alone now outside of town on his farmland. He became like an awkward recluse. No one really saw him much. He didn't. Obviously, he never really socialized, but like he was seen less. He started learning about Nazi medical experiments and human anatomy even more. And then he also was reading a lot of horror novels and he really got into porn. So then on November 16th of 1957, Bernice Warden disappeared from the local hardware store that she owned, which was called International Harvest Products. Her son, Deputy Sheriff Frank Warden, stopped by the store and he noticed something strange about the cash register. And we've seen conflicting reports, either it was left open or it was completely gone. Also, he noticed that there was blood on the floor. Additionally, there was a 22 caliber rifle that was not where it was typically kept. Her last customer that day before she disappeared was Ed Gein. And he had gone into the store for antifreeze. And this dumbass left his receipt on the counter that had his name. So it's pretty easy to see, like, who was the last person she helped? Yeah. So then Gein was arrested at a grocery store and investigators went to his farm, clearly, you know, to search and see what went on. And from here, it just gets so much fucking worse. It's already bad. It's already gross. We've got people who are dying. We've got this weird fucking thing going on with his house. Gein's clearly not doing well. So when authorities, including Sheriff Arthur Schley, went to his farmhouse to investigate, they found nightmares. That's the only way to describe it. And we'll talk about like just how traumatized some of these officers were. But this was like small town and they come into this horror show. This following section, it's really going to show you how Gein inspired Leatherface, House of a Thousand Corpses, Devil's Rejects. Whereas in the first part, I feel like when we were talking about the house and like how he responded after Augusta's death, that really reminds me of Psycho. Yeah. But this part, the more gruesome and gross horror movies, I feel like this is where you're like, oh, I see how they got there from this. Yes. So they found Bernice Warden's dead body and she had been decapitated and she was hung by the rafters by her ankles. And I think it is worth mentioning that, again, small town police officers, her son was the deputy sheriff. He came into the house like he saw her this way. Yes. She had been cut from her vagina to her sternum. He had planned on hanging her up on the wall as a decoration. Awful. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. Sit down. Are you eating while you're listening to this? Perhaps stop. Right. Pause or stop. Yeah. There was an abundance of skeletal pieces all around. Some of the bones were whole while others were in fragments. And then skulls were being used in a plethora of ways. Some were impaled on his bedposts. Others were used in the kitchen as bowls and utensils. And I do not know why. Often what I kept seeing was fork. And the idea of a fucking skull fork is really fucking me up. That really just... I don't even know, like, the mechanics of it. The mechanics of it, but also it's not technically cannibalism, but it's adjacent. Yeah. If you will. And that's an argument, too, with people see him as a cannibal and it's it may be because of this and there's a few other reasons but it's very strange so there was also too many what i'm gonna call human skin crafts any is too many but this was definitely too many he had upholstered chairs with human skin and you can see pictures of the chairs online yeah i didn't like it didn't like it at all no not at all he made a wastebasket several pairs of what was only described as leggings from leg skin, which it feels like in pad taste to call leg skin made pants leggings because they are leggings more than any legging has ever been before. Yeah. He had masks made from faces like Leatherface. And then this next one is, I feel like, the most infamous of the things in the house. He had a belt made from nipples. He also had a pair of lips being used as a window shade drawstring. He had made a corset out of torso skin from a woman. 
He had a lampshade made from someone's face. We also saw that there were some reports of a comforter or a blanket made from skin. So he's just like tucking himself into bed in someone else's skin. Like, ugh. Like, give you chills. The fucking fuck. Like, you're just like some small town deputy. You walk in and you're like, I'm no longer the same person as I was 20 seconds ago. How do you even process this? The amount of therapy you would need. Right. Well, and like I saw reports where the people that did go in instantly were just like vomiting. Oh, yeah. And running out of the house because they're like, this wasn't even on our radar. This isn't something that you expect to see. Even if you're like, okay, this dude probably murdered someone, you know, maybe, but nothing at this level. You're looking at the sheer abundance of human pieces all over, everywhere everywhere right and it's it's not like it's like in one room it's not like it's one type of thing we're talking like blankets fucking bowls yeah bedposts chairs you're like afraid to touch anything right because i mean not that you would be touching anything anyway but like i would be doing some type of like subconscious math of how many humans are in here yeah that and like where did these humans come from right and we'll get to it the weight of that as you're like making your way through the house awful well that and like the house because he was a recluse right and he like Mm -hmm. didn't go out much and you know everyone said he smelled bad he wasn't taking care of himself he wasn't taking care of the house either so it looked like an episode of hoarders but a lot of things made of human if you can even imagine that think of the standard episode of hoarders when you walk into that living room right but his kitchen and i've seen some of the pictures of like people walking out holding some of the stuff with you know the horrific faces they're making and Mm -hmm. it's just wall-to-wall crap just everything all over the place and then certain things are made of human bodies the processing that your brain would have to be doing they also found random human pieces throughout the house they found fingernails four noses that were in a box they found 10 heads throughout the house but the noses that they found did not come from those heads so Digest that. So we've seen two differing accounts of the following. There was either a fridge of organs, which I hate to say it, but I think is the better thing that we want to think happened. Or B, there was an old suit and he packed it with organs. Yeah. So think like the suit is the skin because the skin is literally everywhere else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Both of these are terrible. Yeah. Going through these were like... Uh, this is one where I had to like, mm, now it's time to go watch a kid's show. <laughs> like, it's done. It's done. Oh, yeah. So there was also a heart in a pan on the stove that was later identified as Bernice's heart. And we've also seen where it wasn't in a pan on the stove. It was in a plastic bag in front of the stove. But one of the things that, you know, people kept saying throughout this was, oh, he was a cannibal. He was a cannibal. He was a cannibal. And I think that part of that is because, like, the organs were found in close proximity to the kitchen and you were finding pieces of human in the kitchen. And so I think, like, there's no way that you don't make that leap. But I've never seen any actual evidence or confessions from him where he says, I ate anyone. When we talk about, like, his motives and as to the possible reasons as to why he was doing this, it was never because humans, I want to eat them. Yeah, that and, like, we'll get into it in a little bit, but... As people are filtering in and out of this house, they they needed help, right? Like they needed backup. They're, it's a small town. They didn't have much. So as people are filtering in, they're coming out with different stories and telling it to different people. And then the stories are evolving a little bit as they're being told. Exactly. So they also found faces mounted on the wall. And they found nine vulvas in a shoebox under the bed that had been painted silver. And the processing of that? Yeah, the, I... I it took me a couple of sittings to get through all of the things that were found in his house. And then like some of the articles were showing pictures of the rooms. And I was like, this is too much for today. Yeah, this is a bad fucking time. But I also, again, do find this case fascinating because it's all so fucked up. Yeah, every every piece of it from from the beginning of his life. Every piece of it. And the fact that the number that are confirmed is surprising to me. Yes, I had to. <laughs> 
I went to different sources because like, this can't be right. I doubted myself when I was researching because I was like, this is not as many as I had thought. This has to be wrong. And then, you know, like seven sources later, I'm like, I guess it's right. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. So one of the heads that they found was Mary Hogan's and her head had been found in a paper bag. Mary Hogan had been a tavern keeper in Portage County, and she had gone missing in 1954. Interestingly, she looked a lot like his mother, but she cursed, unlike Augusta. When police arrived at her tavern, there was blood on the floor and a spent shell casing. So later, Gein had confessed that he had been at the bar drinking with her. And then what he did is he pulled the blinds down. He put his shotgun to her forehead and shot her. So another really interesting note is that Gein confessed the next day to a man he was working with. His name was Elmo, but Elmo didn't believe him. He was like, mm, that you wouldn't do that. That didn't happen. So what we first thought of is like, so how many bodies were actually in this house? Right. I don't know if that's where your brain went, but I was like, there's a lot of pieces everywhere. But like, ultimately, how do you know how many bodies are actually there? It's estimated that there were 15 to over 40 sets of remains in that home. Like trying to put all of those pieces together to like form, you know, one body and not having the technology that we do today to do so. It's really like there's no way of knowing. Like I can't I can't even imagine how anyone would handle that. So let's talk about Gein's confession. So according to the book that we already referenced, Deviant, Sheriff Art Schley was so disturbed by the scene that he beat a confession out of Gein by banging his head into a brick wall until he admitted to the shooting death of Mary Hogan. I feel like it wasn't necessary. Once he got talking, he was happy to be talking about it. He wanted to be talking about it. Like I saw an account from one of the people who administered his polygraph. We're really not going to get into it because like we know he did it and he talks about in depth about how he's done things. But the examiner was talking about how he seemed cheery as he discussed things. He's proud of his work. And understandably, the confession was ruled inadmissible later. They also didn't have a warrant to search his place. So they didn't really follow all the necessary steps. Another interesting note about Art is he died at just 43 years old, and it was before Gein came to trial. People believe that he was so traumatized by the scene that his body gave out to avoid testifying. That's really heartbreaking. That's very heartbreaking. I mean, also, the trauma of seeing that and being the person in charge, how would that not weigh on you? How would it not age you like decades? Yeah, there's no way. Do you know what we haven't talked about, Amanda? What have we not talked about? Where the fuck these bodies came from? <laughs> you're right. You're right. Or have you been wondering that, dear listener? We're talking about like him confessing and you're like, but where are these bodies from? Right. How do they not see these people missing? Yeah. 15 to over 40. Wouldn't you notice people going missing in a town of 1,000? Right. Yeah. So Gein admitted that he obtained most of the remains from three local graveyards the Plainfield Cemetery, the Spiritland Cemetery in Portage County, and the Hancock Cemetery. So three different cemeteries. He was going and getting bodies. He started visiting them two years after his mother died. And he started with the cemetery where, of course, his mother was buried. The first body that he dug up was Augusta's. Now, again, we're going to get into some weird details. He twisted her head off with his hands and took it home. He then followed the process that he had found in the books that he was reading about how to shrink a head. So what he would do in these cemeteries, so outside of, you know, shrinking his mom's head, is he would dig up recently buried female bodies and he would dissect them before returning them. But he would, of course, keep some of these pieces. If you've listened to our other episodes, we've talked about like, would you haunt your own body part? Like if someone like kept your skull or something, you know? And I was like, oh, the worst thing I could think of is being like a mandible on a hutch to some like boring couples like daily arguments. This is so much worse. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is bad. So he says that he didn't have sex with the bodies because they smelled terrible. But police still said that he had practiced necrophilia. Mm -mm -mm. Pretty bad. Pretty bad. Nah, man. When he visited the graveyards, he says that he was in like a daze and that he would be looking for bodies that he thought resembled his mother. 
And these are the ones that would make it to his home. Mm-mm. We do not like it. It's going to get so much worse. And it's going to get worse. So his goal was to create a woman suit so that he could become his mother and crawl into her skin. Just like, have to take a moment because that's... That's a thing. That's a lot to take in. That's a thing that happened. Like, this isn't fake. Like, this actually happened. It's what it is. And, like, you have to remind yourself when, like, reading about this. Yeah. That this is something that people experienced. This is a a true story. A man did this. Yeah. I think it is hard to yeah place it in reality and not in just, like, a horror movie. It's not a movie. Yeah, it's not a movie. This is real. This is what inspired countless horror movies that people are afraid of today the worst of the worst yeah and it wasn't fake like just wrapping your head around that it's wild so because he was in this daze he claims that he didn't actually remember digging up the bodies also during this long confession he also confessed to shooting and killing mary hogan so the investigation and criminal proceedings are intertwined as far as the chronological order. So we're going to discuss them in tandem. So in late November of 1957, Gein was charged with robbery. That feels like not enough, right? But from what I understand, the idea was that they kind of wanted to see if he would even be competent to stand trial. Eventually, they would they would add the murder charge on. But Gein was analyzed by a psychologist and a psychiatrist who both diagnosed him with schizophrenia and labeled him as a sexual psychopath. So not surprisingly and not unreasonably, police didn't believe that all of these bodies were from graves, right? Because if somebody can do this, yeah, you would think they could also be killing people. Fair. So they asked him to corroborate his story. And the way he did that was he told them the names of some of the women that he had dug up. And so in the last week of November of 1957, law enforcement opened two graves of women he had named. And the graves were of Eleanor Adams and Mabel Everson. And when they opened them up, they were, in fact, empty. And also, extra gross, extra ooh, always ooh, Mabel was Gein's aunt. So on November 29th of 1957, law enforcement unearthed more bones on Gein's property. This time, they find a gold tooth connected to the skull. And these remains are thought to be those of a man. Yeah, that stands out. Interesting. And abnormal compared to everything else we've seen. So on December 17th of 1957, Dr. E.F. Schubert of Central State Hospital sent the judge of the case a report stating that Gein was insane and that he should be committed to the Central State Hospital. And he does this after Gein discloses basically like what happened and what he did, but also memory deficits. And Dr. Schubert realizes, not surprisingly again, that Gein had an abnormally magnified attachment to his mother. You don't say. Gein was deemed legally insane and was indefinitely committed to the Central State Hospital in January of 1958. So a touch over 10 years later, on January 22nd of 1968, Gein was deemed competent and the proceedings resumed. The preliminary matters took about nine months, and the trial was just a week long and began on November 7th. Gein was found guilty of first-degree murder for shooting Bernice Warden. However, the court also found that when he did shoot her, he was not sane. So the court said that he was not guilty by reason of insanity, and Gein was returned to the Central State Hospital. And so I think that's a really interesting thing to think about, right, is that you could be sane at the time of the trial— Right. But not sane at the time of the incident and how those two can play with one another. And in in this situation, it meant that because he was not sane at the time of the crime, even though he was competent at that moment, he went back to the mental asylum. Right. And it was just one woman, too. Not both. Yes, it was just one woman. In February of 1974, prepare to be annoyed. Gein filed a petition for release, stating that his mental health had recovered and he was competent, and therefore he should no longer be in a hospital. Gein's petition was denied. Fair. Gein died of lung cancer on July 26 of 1984 when he was 77. Now, those at the Central State Hospital considered him helpful and mild-mannered. He was also seen as the model patient. So Gein was buried in one of the cemeteries where he himself had harvested bodies, and that was the Plainfield Cemetery. He was buried with his brother on one side of him and his mother on the other. 
in 2000, his gravestone was stolen and recovered about a year later in Seattle. Shane Bugby had possession of it, and he was the founder of the Ed Gein Fan Club. Get fucked. We don't make fan clubs for people who do shit like this. Exactly. Gross. And so it was decided that they would not put the gravestone back because they thought it would be stolen again. Fair, because these weirdos. Yeah. So it is unknown how many people Gein actually killed. The police were not exactly trained for this sort of case in such a small town. Rumors were crazy and information was changed as the stories were told. So think of a big game of telephone, right? Like we've talked about it with other small town murders, like someone from the scene will say something and then they'll add something to it and then it'll just snowball. Like our fridge full of organs versus our suit full of organs. It feels so different. Exactly. Yeah. Or where the heart was. The sheriff's department where Plainfield is located had only three full-time officers. And during an emergency, the three full-time officers would be backed up by part-time deputies from the surrounding small communities. One of these part-time deputies was Frank Warden, who we talked about, Bernice's son. That wasn't even like his full-time job. Very few officers had any real law enforcement training, which is scary to think. But I mean, like in a small town, they're not going to run into big stuff, you know, think that they wouldn't. Yeah. People suspect that he killed Henry. But also many people who went missing in that area. It's speculated that some of the remains in the house may have been from two girls who we'll talk about. The first of which is Georgia Jean Weckler, who went missing on May 1st of 1947. And she was only eight years old when she went missing. There was no evidence on the scene other than there being tire tracks that came from a Ford. I think what's so interesting is that people associate this murder to him but without any real reason right like we didn't hear anything about any of the body parts being from children and he was trying to build a mother suit so it doesn't behoove him to have eight-year-old skin there's not any evidence that points to him and so to me what what i'm seeing and, and thinking is that this town basically went we cannot have more than one terrible person so on november 1st of 1952 Victor or Bunk Travis, who was only 42, and his friend Ray Burgess went missing after the pair had spent a couple hours at the bar in Plainfield. Victor's jacket and dog were found near the Gein farm, and some neighbors noted a stench coming from Gein's garden around that same time. Their cases remained unsolved, and that would be unusual, you know, for like the majority of Gein's victims, right? Or women, uh, or at least the the parts that they found in the house. So it would be like odd unless, I mean, my speculation is maybe they happened upon something or maybe saw something that they shouldn't have. Yeah. So on October 24th of 1953, Evelyn Hartley, who was only 15, was babysitting for some family friends when she was abducted. Her father found broken eyeglasses, blood stains, and footprints, which led law enforcement to believe that she struggled against her abductor. Two miles southeast of La Crosse, her bra and panties were found. Then, four miles further, a pair of men's pants covered in blood were found. Evelyn's body, however, was never found. So, again, disappearance in the same area must be Gein. Yeah. So, in Plainfield, many families still to this day talk about stories and how they were affected by what Gein did. People had relatives that were dug up by Gein. And... An interesting rumor that circulated is people claim that they ate Gein's homemade venison. But oddly enough, he did not hunt. I think what's interesting is like when you think about like rural America, it's hard for me to imagine a farmer that doesn't hunt. Because like if deer are on your property, it's possible that you would shoot them even if you weren't a hunter. Maybe. Per se. That's just my argument that, like, perhaps he was a hunter. Right. And maybe he wasn't a hunter. I don't know. I hope I, that's what I want it to be in this situation. Because, you know, I don't deal well with cannibalism. Please continue. Well, I'm thinking it's just because people wanted to have a, an interesting story because of the rumors of him being a cannibal. But from everything that we've read, the rumor started for a couple different reasons, but not anything factual. One, the heart being found either on or near the stove and how Bernice was found. 
And then also District Attorney Earl Killeen said, quote, the body had been cleaned and handled in a similar way to that used in a slaughterhouse. It appears to be cannibalism. So someone that you would believe said it appears to be cannibalism. Yeah. After that, that's when people started coming forward about the homemade venison story and saying things like it made them sick. Hmm. Okay. So I'm guessing it was, oh, once I ate something from Gein's house, maybe they did eat something from someone's house, but at least like me personally, I don't think it was Gein. I think like people were probably sharing stuff and they're like, oh, this came from Gein, you know, like in their head because they had to be part of the story. Yeah. Well, also, like, he's doing odd jobs. It's completely possible that maybe he did process meat for someone. That's true. That's true. Maybe something happened like that. Or maybe he delivered some, like, delivered venison from Joe to Bob. Yeah. Or he was there, like, when they ate venison from someone for all they knew. I don't know where, you know, it originated from, but there are several stories online saying that someone got sick from eating his venison. One of the first psychiatrists to interview Gein wrote that he denied eating the bodies. And honestly, he admitted to everything else. So he's likely telling the truth. That's my mentality. Like, why hold back? Yeah. Why hold back now? You have skull bedposts and lampshades made of faces. I also ate the meat. Wouldn't be that much of a shock. No, not at all. And then... Other people in town remember seeing the headlights in the cemetery at night, which is like a weird memory, right? Like to be like, oh, and I remember this happening. Yeah. And being like, you're probably like, oh, someone's visiting someone in the middle of the night. And then realizing later what happened. People grieve at all hours of the night. Maybe not like this, though. So let's talk about Ed's stuff. Ed's house burned down in March of 1958 while he was at Central State Hospital for the criminally insane. And it's suspected that it was arson because it happened shortly after people learned that there was an entrepreneur who planned to open it as a tourist attraction called the House of Horrors. Now, unfortunately, a substantial amount of evidence was also destroyed in the fire. However, I'm going to say it like, like it is. This particular arsonist was a good Samaritan because... It should have just been burned down. Like, it should have just gone away and ceased to exist. It didn't need to be in the world. And frankly, if you had a relative who was at least partially inside of that home, you don't want that piece back. You don't want to bury that again. Let it be. Let it go. Just let it go, as far as I'm concerned. Well, I think it's like, I'm sad that some of the evidence was destroyed. So maybe some people never got closure that they deserved. But also, like someone profiting off of what happened to their loved one yeah exactly you know like you have to weigh that and that that's just disgusting like how dare people exactly and also i mean i guess my thing is like the idea that what was in the house was going to have to leave and go be used as evidence somewhere if i was a police officer at that time i think that i would be hoping that it would just disappear so that i didn't have to handle it and take it out you know that's true, too. Like, it go in some, like, municipal fridge. Anyway, anyway, I'm grossing myself out. On March 30th of 1958, Gein's farm and belongings were sold off. And there's an old 8mm video available that shows it. And it looks like it was really busy, and it happened right after the house burned down. Gein's car was auctioned off, and it was a 1949 Ford sedan. And it's what he drove the day of Bernice's murder and what he used to transport bodies from the graveyard. And a carnival sideshow operator named Bunny Gibbons paid $760 for the car. And Bunny did open it up as a sideshow at the state fair. And they charged 25 cents to take a peek inside the ghoul car. Gross. And 2,000 people, from what I saw, looked inside this car and paid that 25 cents. And eventually he was banned from the state fair for doing this. I mean, that's a reasonable response. Like, don't do that, especially so soon after. Gross. So M. Nishlai bought the farm and the outbuildings and the homestead site for $4,658. Over the years, the outbuildings were torn down and pine trees were planted. Most of the property was sold off, but the homestead site stayed in the family and was eventually passed down to Mike Fisher, 
who tried to sell the property on eBay for $250,000 in April of 2006. This was a significantly higher price than similarly sized and situated properties in the area. And it said, as you can see from the ad, I'm asking $250,000 because I'm guessing there's some kook out there willing to spend the money for his 15 minutes of fame. And eBay removed the listing. Good on you, eBay. Right. But it does look like the property did eventually sell to someone else and that that person has allowed film crews to shoot Gein content there. Yeah. Okay, ish. Like a lot of people go to visit the property. I do not want to go near that property ever. Yeah. So another just interesting thing about Gein's stuff is there's a man named Dan McIntyre who has an interesting story about one of the belongings. Could be his, could not be. But he ended up inheriting it. His grandmother, Evelyn Mayer, saw a cauldron for sale and thought it would be a nice planter. Did you? Did you, Evelyn? Right. She also bought some gardening tools from the auction. Years after purchasing it, it ended up in Dan's parents' garage. And this is where it gets interesting. A friend of Dan's, Hollis Brown, saw the cauldron in the garage and then he it was immediately horrified because he's like, I've seen that thing before. He was a neighbor to Gein's farm and he was there assisting police with the cleanup. So he remembered seeing it during the cleanup. He saw, you know, all the gruesome things that were described. But this particular cauldron was there and he was super familiar with it because before the murders and while Gein's parents were still alive, Dan had cooked hog fat with them in that same cauldron. It's a weird memory. It's a weird memory to have, right? It is. Yeah. And when he saw it during the cleanup, though, so, you know, a long time ago, he, he cooks the hog fat in there. But then when he saw it during the cleanup, it was covered in blood and entrails and was sitting next to two containers of bloody human intestines. And a body was also hanging close to it. We do not like it. We do not like it. No. So the cauldron ended up at auction. And then here's here's where it's going to get even worse. Guess who fucking purchases it along with a shovel? Fucking Zach Baggins. Fucking Zach Baggins. He buys it for $2,800 and he did a whole episode with it. Dan says that the cauldron has a dark energy and it used to freak him out when he was little and that it might be cursed because the five people that helped clean out his garage when it was just, you know, being stored died within 18 months for various reasons, which is interesting. I don't like it. I don't like that at all. Don't like that at all. And he believes that it was like dormant while it was in the garage. But of course, like it got disturbed somehow. And, you know, either like when they were cleaning it out during auction, movement, whatever, it reawakened. And the cauldron was featured in April of 2017 on Zach Baggins series, Deadly Possessions. And I want to say now it's called Ghost Adventures Artifacts. I saw it on YouTube. I couldn't find it like on their site, but YouTube had it all over. It's season one, episode five. Because we're not paying for that. And he also, in that same uh, episode, just interestingly, he covers the Crying Boy paintings, which we've already covered a while ago. Yeah. Interesting. So Dan actually came to talk to Zach during the episode about the cauldron and the shovel. And I, I watched most of it. And Zach ended up also buying Gein's skis as well. You know, of course, these things are cursed, too. What an interesting thing to buy. I guess it's like what he has that he can purchase. You know, he's like, anything of Gein's is for me. Right. And like, I was just in Vegas for, you know, the one we were young concert. Just casually. And I was so mad that everyone's like, oh, I'm going to Zach Baggins Museum. And I'm like, ew, why? <laughs> Don't give him money. Agreed. He gets no money. No money for you. He gets no money. I like was trying to like talk people out of it. I'm like, there's so many better things to do in Vegas. Please do not. <laughs> Please don't. Don't encourage his behavior. What a time we've had talking to you about Gein. Are you nauseous? Intrigued? Any of these things? Maybe something else? Right? Just nauseous. As we've said like a thousand times. I just I didn't know this much about Ed Gein. Did you already know this? Like, I knew about the crime scene like I knew that there was a bunch of bodies and like various creepy terrible ways but I didn't know that he didn't murder all those people 
You know, like, yeah, I knew a little bit about the grave robbing. But again, I like I just didn't realize that only two were confirmed. Yeah, I thought it was more people. And then now I'm like, no, it's the crime scene. Totally fair to be fucking like terrified of that. But yeah, I didn't know that. So also a few little housekeeping notes at the end. As a reminder, we only have a few more episodes this year because we take the month of December off so that we can celebrate the holidays and not be completely overwhelmed. So after November, you won't see us again till the beginning of January. But also, should this during this time, you think of us now, then, later, anytime, really. We do have a new place on our website where you can suggest episodes. So you go to truecreeps.com and you'll see it right on the menu bar. It says like episode ideas and you can click that and submit that, submit ideas. There's also a place for you to ask case questions. It can be on a case that we've covered or on a case that we haven't covered. If you're like, I want to know about this thing, let us research it for you. Also, if you want to still hang out with us during the month, we'll still be active on the Bat Bonfire on our Facebook group, which is open to everyone. And of course, our Patreon-only Discord. We're active on there pretty much every day. That's all the time. That That's a fun time. <laughs> yeah, that's all the time. That's, that's our, our chit-chat in place. Yeah. So if you want to look at our Patreon or anything, too, it's on our website, truecreeps.com. There's links everywhere. There's merch links, all kinds of fun stuff. Yeah. And I will just say this is, you know, left field, but one of my favorite things to see is when people tag us in their stories of them listening. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It just makes my day, especially when it's like an older episode. Because I'm like, oh, you're new. You're new to creeping with us. Welcome. Binge us. Mm hmm. And if you haven't already, take a minute, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Facebook. If you screenshot it and email it to us at truecreepspod at gmail.com, we would be happy to send you a sticker. So we're still doing that. Yeah, always doing that. Our our contest ended, but we're always giving out stickers for reviews. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and with that, have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. And as always, a special thank you to our patrons who support us via Patreon. Please see the link in our show notes to learn more about how you, yes, you, can begin to haunt the dump, guard vortexes, or even become a scorching Sasquatch. Also in our show notes, you can find the link to our website, more information on our sources, our social media handles, and our merch store. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps and or ghosts. I beg of you. <laughs> In my head, all I'm seeing is Elmo Elmo. I absolutely did. So, <laughs> yeah, logically, I know that Elmo is a name that people have, but I cannot picture a human named Elmo. I can only think of Elmo, Elmo. I think of a giant doll. Like, <laughs> okay. I don't even think of a giant doll, just a normal sized Elmo out working in the fields with Gein, which is a horrifying thing to think about. And I'm concerned about Elmo because all he is is skin. He's a puppet. You know, all he is is skin. <laughs> all he is is skin. <laughs> okay. I can't laugh at this. <laughs> Okay, okay. I'm composed. Did you? Did you, Evelyn? All he is is skin. <laughs>